Well, uh, the engineering behind skyscrapers is incredible. Uh, there's a new building at 432 Park Avenue in New York City overlooking Park West. I don't know if you've had a chance to see this building. Uh, but this building is 96 stories high, and yet it's only 90 feet across at its base, which is just amazing. That's an over 9 to 1 ratio of height uh, to width. Now, by comparison, the Empire State Building, of course, is a skyscraper, but it's 100 feet shorter than this building, and it's 424 feet across at its base. So a big difference. It's really difficult, engineering-wise, to make these tall and thin buildings. And in New York City, of course, there's no space, so uh, what you want is tall, thin buildings if you can find a place to put one. So to build these tall and thin towers, uh, the most important factor, the most important thing you have to deal with is to figure out how you're going to manage the effects of the wind. So engineers build these buildings with kind of rounded edges uh, or notched corners that break up the force of the wind. And they, they install these channels into the corners of the building that kind of allows the wind to flow like right through the building and then out the other side. And they use these incredible things called dampers, which are like... 300 to 800 ton steel uh, uh, counterweights that kind of act like pendulums uh, that help to balance out when the wind blows one way, the counterweights uh, work the other way to give these buildings uh, their balance and to make them steady. And they put these huge pools of water, like in the foundation in the basement, uh, and those pools of water absorb all the vibrations that are caused by the tremendous amount of wind. So you can see that it's quite an endeavor, and to make these tall, thin buildings, you have to have a strong and dynamic interior, or else the building will not be able to stand the external pressures of the wind. Well, Nehemiah was building a wall, and he was building a nation, uh, not building a skyscraper, but still some of the same principles applied. You need a strong foundation, you need a strong internal uh, community to be able to withstand outside forces. So Nehemiah 5, uh, he learns that the building, the, the nation of Israel, the, this community of people who's there rebuilding this wall has a shaky foundation. There are problems uh, internally that would stop it from being able to withstand the external forces of the enemies who wanted to do them harm. You remember Nehemiah 4 last week? That ended on a high note, right? The, the enemies of Israel attacked Israel, at least verbally, and they were trying to do everything they could to stop this wall from being built. But Israel stared down its enemies, and the wall continued on, and it was a complete enclosure now, although only to half its height. Uh, but there are so many, only so many hours in the day, though. In Nehemiah 4, we learn that these people worked on the wall from the moment they woke up, from dawn, until the stars appeared. So 14 to 16 hours a day working on this wall. And with the people spending every work, waking hour working on the wall, well, uh, it seems that they didn't have time to work to support themselves. And so the wall was a noble and God-ordained task, and they were right to do the work. But people still had bills to pay, and they had mouths to feed. So building the wall came at great personal sacrifice to the workers who were doing it. And when they couldn't earn enough money to manage their own households, to pay their bills and their debts, well, some of the wealthier Jews smelled an opportunity to get rich. 
So in the preceding chapters, the danger, like I said, was from the outside, right? It's Sanballat, it's Tobiah, it's the enemies of Israel. But here in chapter 5 now, we have uh, internal uh, dissension uh, and people who are trying to, uh, not trying to stop the wall necessarily, but by their actions, uh, the effect was a chilling effect on the wall because these people couldn't work. So there's an internal conflict here that Nehemiah has to deal with that threatened the completion of the wall and the nation itself as a whole. So verses 1 through 5, let's talk about this internal conflict. There was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let's get grain so that we may eat and live. And there were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses so that we might get grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. And now... Our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children, yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So Nehemiah is this great leader, right? And he's doing amazing things. The wall is his number one priority. That is what he's fixated on. And he's got whole families working together uh, in their own backyards, being sure that the places opposite uh, their own homes uh, were being completed. But it seems that the problem that Nehemiah failed to recognize was that because they were working so hard on the wall, they weren't able to work at their regular jobs, tend their fields, and pay their own bills because they were working so many hours on the wall. So in verse 2, uh, one group of people didn't have enough to eat. Uh, and so the months they had spent working on the wall were, were, was time that they couldn't work on their fields. And so they had to go buy grain instead of harvesting it from their own fields. So they say, let's go get grain that we might eat and live. Verse 3, another group of people well, was mortgaging their fields and their vineyards and their houses in order to get grain to eat. So they were mortgaging their property to wealthier Jews uh, who charged high rates of interest. And when the people couldn't afford to make the payments, well, then the wealthier Jews foreclosed on their land and acquired it. And then there's the third group in verse 4. These people borrowed their money using field, their fields as security uh, and then like a pledge almost, to pay taxes because King Artaxerxes still demanded you still have to pay uh, your taxes to, to the kingdom. So Artaxerxes is demanding to, pay, to have the taxes, uh, taxes paid, but when they couldn't pay their debts, well, again, the, the foreclosures were happening and uh, people were losing their property. And then there's this final group of people in verse 5 that complained uh, that they had to sell their own children into slavery to pay their debts because they had already mortgaged and sold their fields and vineyards. So they were already out of options. The last thing they had left of value was their own kids. Can you imagine? So verse 3 mentions the famine. Now, we don't know if the famine was pre-existing or if the famine was as a result of the fact that they weren't working their fields. Uh, but it seems like Nehemiah should have foreseen these consequences of abandoning working on the land so that they could work to build the wall. And for some reason, it seems that these complaints took him by surprise. But uh, what is clear is that the unethical business practices that these wealthier Jews were engaging in, uh, they were violations of the law of Moses. So in Exodus 22, it says, If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. And that's just what they were doing. 
And there was also provisions for slavery in Exodus chapter 21. Uh, it, it existed, but it was controlled. So uh, Exodus 21.2, if you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. But on the seventh, he shall leave as a free man without a payment to you. So you could sell yourself into slavery. That's one thing. To have to sell your children into slavery because of these unethical business practices of, of these Jews who uh, probably weren't working on the wall and some commentators believe were actually uh, in alliance with their enemies, Sanballat and Tobiah. If these things are happening, well, that's going to destroy families and, of course, it's going to destroy nas uh, national morale. So what's going on here? Like at the heart of all of this, this is a cry for these workers for justice, right? There is injustice here. They obeyed Nehemiah. They, they trusted God. And this, this is their repayment. This is what happens to them for it. So when we read through Nehemiah 5, we really just have reinforced to us what we already know about human nature, right? There are always going to be greedy people who are looking to make a buck. And if they have to do it by exploiting others, uh, well, sometimes so be it. Uh, the Enron scandal, the Bernie Madoff scandals, those are still fresh in our minds for some of us. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, 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 these are greedy people who are always going to find a way to capitalize on circumstances for their own benefit. Now, Jesus addressed social injustice many times uh, throughout the Gospels. One example is when he cleared the temple uh, of the money changers, right? And, and what had happened there? Uh, the Pharisees had set themselves up as the authority uh, to inspect all the animals. So whenever you brought an animal for Passover, uh, they inspected it, and they had to decide, make a determination about whether your animal, which had to be a one-year-old lamb without blemish, uh, whether that lamb passed the Pharisees' muster. And it was in their best interest, their own personal interests, to have your lamb not pass muster because once it didn't, then they could sell you one of their lambs at exorbitant prices and then you'd have to sacrifice their lamb. And so they were making a lot of money doing that. And not only that, uh, if you came to Israel with some other kind of currency, if you came with uh, Roman coins or something other than a Jewish shekel, well, they charged a massive exchange rate. They wouldn't accept your foreign money. Uh, they would make you exchange it, and they would charge you a massive rate. So Jesus saw this injustice. He used a cord of whips to drive out the people who were doing this in the temple courts. And he was righteously angry, quoting from, uh, from Jeremiah. He said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So social injustice, uh, Jesus recognized it. And, and here's Nehemiah finally recognizing it. Uh, these were the rich and powerful Jews of the day who were taking advantage of their uh, poorer brothers. So Jesus was concerned about social injustice, and, and we ought to be too. As Christians, we ought to be concerned about that. Uh, Jesus cared for the poor. He cared for the marginalized. Uh, do you remember Luke chapter 15? This is the chapter where uh, Jesus tells the three great parables, the lost coin, uh, the lost sheep, and then the lost son. Well, what predicated that was the Pharisees' anger uh, that Jesus would eat with tax collectors and with sinners. Uh, this is what it says. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And that's why Jesus told the three parables, right? Because in each parable, it shows uh, that Jesus taught that Every single soul is valuable in God's eyes. He will leave the 99 sheep to go and to find the one who is lost. And when he finds him, there will be rejoicing in heaven. 
So Jesus is interested in social justice, and I think we as a church body are interested in it too. Uh, when we do our monthly food drive, or when we send books to inmates to prisons around the country so that they can uh, read these books and, and hear the gospel, uh, we're showing our concern for the poor and the marginalized. And when we give money to missionaries so they can take the gospel to places that you and I will never go, uh, we are showing the love of Christ uh, and we are uh, helping them to hear the gospel so they might have a way to salvation. And so Jesus cares about these things and I'm glad that our church does too. When he comes again, he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. He's going to put the goats on his left. He's going to put the sheep on his right. And this is what he's going to say to them. He's going to say to them, uh, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to, to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Whenever you did this to the least of my brothers, you did it to me. So our role is not to exploit the poor, right? Just the opposite. Our role is to care for the poor, to love them as Jesus loves them. And many times, oftentimes, it's through caring for the poor and the marginalized and for someone's physical needs that we have the opportunity, the chance to speak to them about the gospel. So remedying the spiritual uh, wrong or or physical wrongs, uh, sometimes remedying social injustices will give us the platform and the credibility to speak the gospel to someone who's never heard it. Well, Nehemiah was trying to do this now, now that he understands the problem, and he recognizes that this problem is quite serious. Satan has many arrows in his quiver, right? When he couldn't stop the project by all of these uh, Sanballats and Tobias of the world who were giving these Jews a hard time, when that didn't work and the the Jews continued to build the wall, well, he says, if I can't stop this thing externally, I'm going to see if I can stop it internally. And that's what the plan was. So uh, he tried to do it by using the greed to destroy their unity and their purpose in rebuilding the wall. So when Nehemiah hears about the problem and the extent of the problem, he became very angry and he confronted the leaders. Then I was very angry, verses 6 to 8, when I heard their outcry and these words. So I thought it over and contended with the nobles and the leading people and said to them, you are lending at interest, each to his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them and I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. So Nehemiah becomes angry, uh, and he, 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 he was angry with a righteous anger, but he didn't react until he thought it over. And given Nehemiah's track record, uh, my guess is that he went to the Lord in prayer with this before he did anything uh, about how to address this situation. And then after a time, he decided to gather them all together, including the nobles and the leading people, and then he confronted them. So these were the wealthy. These are the ones who are breaking the law by extorting interest from their Jewish brothers. And verse 8 is interesting. It implies that the leaders of Israel had actually spent their own money to rescue some of the, their fellow brethren from slavery in foreign nations, which of course is a very noble thing to do. But it seems that once they bought the slaves back from the foreign nations, then they were enslaving them to themselves, right? By, by extorting the interest and, and by taking their property uh, and taking their own children in exchange for money to buy bread. 
So Nehemiah knew that these practices threatened the nation's very existence. A nation with a shaky foundation will not stand up against its enemies. And if they could not get the wall built, uh, it wouldn't be long before they were overrun by their enemies. And so it really was a matter of life and death uh, to the nation. And to their credit, to, to these lenders' credit, they didn't offer a defense. They knew they were wrong. And that gave Nehemiah an open door to propose a solution. So that's what he does in verses 9 to 11. The thing you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the taunting of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please, let's do this without interest. Please, give back to them this very day their fields and their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses, as well as the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine, and the oil that you are charging as interest from them. So they knew that the business practices violated the law. And Nehemiah offers a reason, well, at least the first reason, why they shouldn't be doing this. Shouldn't you fear uh, the Lord and do things the Lord's way? If when you break the law repeatedly, God will certainly use uh, Israel's enemies to judge them. I mean, after all, it's only been 100 years since the Babylonian captivity and the reason why they were there rebuilding the temple and the walls to begin with. Uh, so they should have that fresh in their mind. So that's the first reason that they should do the right thing is because it violates the law of God. But secondly, shouldn't they be concerned about their own brothers and sisters? Uh, and so you, you just wonder uh, with these people what they were thinking. Were, were they friends of Israel? Were they enemies of Israel? Uh, you would want to think that, that they would all want the wall to be built uh, because it was for their common good. But sometimes people have other interests which are hard to understand. So Nehemiah, uh, it's strange to me that he took so long to recognize this problem because he was so focused on the wall, apparently. But now he finally realizes the toll that it's taking on the people. And when he understands that others are taking advantage of, the, of them, then he, he really gets upset. Because in verse 10, it seemed like Nehemiah actually loaned money uh, and grain to the Jews also, but it looked like he wasn't charging them interest because it doesn't say he charged them interest there. And so it seems to me that he's holding himself as an example. It's okay to lend, but you're not supposed to lend with interest. That's against the law. Don't do that. Uh, and so uh, it's a crisis. It's a real crisis. And so Nehemiah has to come up with a solution to this problem. And so because the crisis is so pervasive and it's so present and, and, and a right now issue, uh, it called for a drastic solution. So Nehemiah's proposal is that they shouldn't lend at all, but instead they should give Whatever they had, they should give. And what they've already given, they should give or, or taken, they should already give back. So Nehemiah's solution is, look, uh, these people have great need. You do not have great need. You are within your rights to lend without interest. But in certain circumstances, it's better just to give rather than to lend. And so Nehemiah proposes full forgiveness of the debt, that they give back the fields, the olive groves, the houses, everything else that they had, along with whatever interest they had already collected on the loans that they had made. So this is a, a change of course, right? Uh, Nehemiah is going to do something different that they hadn't done before. And so it takes a strong leader to admit that there's a better way of doing things. Um, there was nothing uh, in the law or against the law about lending uh, without interest. And, and there's nothing wrong with accepting a pledge in circum certain circumstances. You're allowed to do that according to the law. But for Nehemiah, a better way to deal with the problem was just to give the money away without expecting repayment. And when you think about that, 
when you, when you do lending, that creates a business relationship, right? And so now you have a business transaction. When you give a gift, that creates a love relationship, a different kind of relationship. And so that's the kind of relationship that Nehemiah was trying to encourage. Uh, and considering the work and the sacrifice that these families had been making uh, for this time as they built the wall, uh, anyone who could give should give rather than expecting repayment. Now, for us, one of the surest ways that people will know that we belong to Jesus is through our generosity. Uh, when we give, we bless the one in need, uh, and they are blessed by that, and we show them God's love. So two good things are happening at the same time there. And when we do it, we show that we are trusting God, that, that he is able to replenish whatever it is uh, that we have given away. So we know that we all need money to survive, right? It pays for our basic needs. We need food, clothing, shelter, and those basic things. And, and there's not even anything wrong with having excess money. Uh, but the problem is when our wealth becomes so important to us that we tend to hoard it and we're, we're afraid to give it away because that shows that we love our stuff and our money more than we love God or others. And that's the problem that the rich young ruler had, remember? Uh, he says, what shall I do, Jesus, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, uh, keep the commandments. And the man says, well, I've done all those things since I was a boy. And Jesus sees right through him to the heart of the problem. And he says, you do this, go and sell all your stuff and give to the poor and then come follow me and then you will have treasure in heaven. And that was what tripped up the man, right? He couldn't deal with having to sell his stuff and he went away sad because he was very rich. Well. That's a problem. If, you're, if your possessions possess you, then you've made an idol out of them. But that's not the case in our church, as far as I'm aware. This is the most generous church I've ever been a part of, and I'm just so grateful for your generosity because it's your giving that allows us to support missionaries and to do this new uh, giving books to prisoners missionary that we've embarked on and, and to do other kinds of ministry that, that we're called to and we're showing through our generosity that we belong to Jesus and that we trust that God can replenish whatever we've given away. Well, Nehemiah knew that. He knew that, that for the unity of this nation to, to continue, for the wall to continue, uh, they were going to have to patch up this problem. And so after Nehemiah proposes this plan, I'm sure he was more than relieved to find out that the leaders agreed to it. So let's talk about their sincere response. <clears throat> then they said, we will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and made them take an oath to act in accordance with this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, so may God shake out every person from his house and from his possessions who does not keep this promise. Just so may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and they praised the Lord. Then the people acted in accordance with this promise. So the leaders agreed to everything that Nehemiah had proposed. But Nehemiah was smart, though. You know, have you ever been in an emotional moment where you're like, yeah, I'm going to write a big check to this missionary, and then, you know, five minutes passes and the feeling fades? Uh, Nehemiah knew that about human nature, and so he said, quick, call the priests, right? So he calls the priests, and he puts them all under oath so that they uh, will bind themselves by an oath uh, to fulfill the promise. And then on top of that, Nehemiah gives a, a physical illustration, right? He shakes out his garments and, uh, as a symbol of how God would shake them from their houses if they failed to keep this oath. 
Uh, but the people seemed like they were very well-intentioned. So after taking the oath, uh, it seems that they did exactly what they promised because they were convicted by Nehemiah and they were convicted by God. And so sometimes you just need somebody like a Nehemiah to, to show uh, where the sin is. And, and when, when Nehemiah, a man of courage like that, would stand up and show them their sin, uh, sometimes with people with a good heart, they're able to see that, that Nehemiah was right, uh, God convicts them, and they repent. Well, it's interesting to me that this story is placed here, Nehemiah 5. It's right between this crisis that they had in chapter 4 with external forces and the crisis that we're going to look at next week in chapter 6. Again, external forces coming against uh, the nation of Judah. So why is this story here? Why is it placed right here? And I think it's because, like we've been saying, a shaky foundation, the building will collapse. And so uh, Nehemiah has to deal with this project or, or problem for the project to continue. Uh, the, uni the unity of the people uh, has to be such that they would work together, live together, be able to eat and, and have a place to live, uh, get their children out of slavery, uh, or else the project would certainly have been abandoned. So, you know, 432 Park Avenue is going to collapse without a firm foundation, right? And so would the nation of Israel. And, you know, that's one of the main themes of Paul's letters. If you read Paul's letters, he's always talking about unity in the church. Well, you know, he spends a lot of time, of course, talking about the gospel and explaining it. But when he's applying it, unity in the church is so important because the first century church faced massive obstacles and it was going to face massive persecution. And they needed to stick together if they were going to survive as a church. And so if they didn't have harmony from within, they were going to be well, destroyed from outside. And so these are Nehemiah's concerns. He knows that there would be no way to complete this wall until Nehemiah brought justice and fixed their internal problems. And he handled the problems just like you would expect an effective leader to do it. Uh, he was angry, but it was a righteous anger. And then he prayed, I'm sure, although the text doesn't explicitly say it. He thought these things over, and then he took action. And so he confronted the, the offenders and he fixed the problem. So praise the Lord, the crisis was averted. So that takes us through verse 13. Now as we move on to verses 14 to 19, uh, Nehemiah was dealing with a specific problem during the construction of the walls in verses 1 to 13. But now in verses 14 to 19, these are general statements that Nehemiah makes about the entirety of his tenure as governor of Judah. So let's read them and make some observations. Furthermore, since the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the previous governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people, but I did not do so because of my fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me, and every ten days all sorts of wine were prepared or provided in abundance. Yet for all this I did not request the governor's food allowance, because the forced labor was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good in return for all I have done for this people. So here's the first mention that Nehemiah actually held the position of governor and that Artaxerxes had appointed him as such. 
And he also mentioned that he served as the governor for 12 years. Now that's interesting because when we think about the conversation that Nehemiah had with Artaxerxes back in Nehemiah 2, we wouldn't expect that he was going to be gone for 12 years, right? Artaxerxes said, how long will you be gone? You wouldn't expect that 12 years would have been the answer. Artaxerxes might have had a different answer, right, if that were, the question, if that were his, uh, Nehemiah's answer. But I think what probably happened and what most scholars say is that he was gone for about a year, then he returned to Susa, uh, probably reported that the project was going well and that, that uh, this was actually going to be a boon for Artaxerxes to allow it to continue. So Artaxerxes recommissioned Nehemiah as governor and sent him back and he co uh, completed 12 uh, or you know, 11 more years or, or so uh, as the governor of Judah. So he's governor of Judah, and one of the great benefits of being that is that you get a food allowance, and it was a very generous one. Uh, but Nehemiah refused to take it, although it seems that the prior governors, which would have meant probably from the people all the way dating from Zerubbabel 100 years earlier up to now, uh, had taken that allowance. So Nehemiah, because of his reverence for God and because of his love for the people, uh, he refused to take it even though it was his right. And so Nehemiah isn't interested in accumulating wealth for himself because he was dedicated to the task of completing the wall and showing love and compassion for these people. And I'm sure these qualities of Nehemiah really endeared him to them uh, and, and the people that he governed. So he's got 150 uh, officials in his cabinet uh, to feed. And it's remarkable that he had the, the money and then the generosity to be willing to pay to feed them from his own pocket for 12 years. And the only thing that can explain this is that there must have been quite a nice salary attached to being cupbearer for the king. And perhaps he, he had a whole bunch of wealth accumulated uh, from those years in Persia. So <clears throat> that is his idea about how he should deal with the needs of the people. He's going to pay for it himself. He's not going to take the food allowance because the food allowance would result in a further taxation to the people. And he didn't want them to have to bear that burden. So at the end of all this, Nehemiah prays this final prayer. And what are we to make of this final prayer? Remember me, my God, for good in return for all that I have done for this people. Uh, so this is the first of, of seven of these prayers that we'll see through now through the end of the book of Nehemiah. So what do we think about this prayer? Is it a, self, a prayer for self-glorification? Is he asking to be rewarded in some special way for what he has done? Well, I don't think so. I'm trying to give Nehemiah a, a very strong benefit of the doubt here because God wants us to do good for his people. And he, we expect that he will remember what we've done in terms of good deeds, not for our salvation, but because we do these things because we want to magnify and glorify the Lord. So Nehemiah is not, you know, standing out on a corner saying, look at all the great things I've done and, you know, you should all worship and glorify me. He's not doing that. It's like he's, he's almost writing in his secret diary, right, that he almost doesn't expect people to see. Uh, and it seems like he knew that he would be forgotten in a generation or two by the people, but he wants to be sure that God will never forget him. And so he asks that God remember a man who acts in good faith with love and compassion and proper motives. So Nehemiah was a man with a clear conscience, right? He always did what was right. And he could put his head on the pillow each night knowing that he was in God's will and that he was a humble servant of the Lord. He was not a double-minded man who was uh, chasing after wealth and acclaim on the one hand while pretending to serve God on the other. So he modeled this love for God and a service and compassion for the people in Judah in everything he did. And that's just the kind of man that Nehemiah was. So how can we apply this to our own lives. Well, the first thing I say is this, uh, look for opportunities to help others. 
You know, there are millions of people in the world and there are thousands of people just in our own neighborhoods that don't have enough food or water or adequate shelter. And so we as Christians, we simply cannot be indifferent to the plight of the poor and we must do what we can to help. So if we have money, if we have extra money, we should be generous, we should be liberally generous to give some of that away. And if we don't have extra money, but we have time, we should volunteer. We should volunteer our time to help. There are opportunities to serve all around us if we are looking for them. So uh, all it takes is, is uh, a desire and a willingness on our part to, to turn our, our focus outward instead of inward at ourselves and be more aware of other basic needs. And if you can afford to give, you should give rather than lend, because as I said, the business relationship is not as strong as the personal relationship. That's where the love and the sharing of the gospel comes in. And we have opportunity to, to share the gospel when we give lovingly. So uh, look for opportunities to help others. Also, make course corrections when needed. You know, Nehemiah saw the injustices in Judah, and he fixed them. Uh, he even saw the problem with his own way of doing things. He was lending without interest, but he was still lending, and so he realized that giving would be better uh, without expecting repayment. So that is a course correction. And so you and I should not be so set in our ways that we are not able to receive course corrections from God, because God often asks us to change what it is that we're doing. And we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, so we ought to be able to be in touch and, in, and attuned to the Holy Spirit who speaks to us and tells us what he would want us to do. So if we're praying, if we're reading our Bibles, God will speak to us and he will show us how he wants us to change and what he wants us to do. And we just need to be more attentive to his voice to make course corrections if they need to be made. And finally, God will remember us. You know, Nehemiah's final prayer, that God remember him, reminds me of all of God's promises to us. Uh, God says that our names are written in the book of life when we become believers. He promises never to leave us or to forsake us. Uh, Jesus says, of all that the Father has given to me, I will lose not even one. And so, brothers and sisters, if we have believed in Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead, and we have placed our faith in him for salvation, God will never forget us. He will remember us, and he will raise us up on the last day. And when we die, we'll be immediately transferred into his glorious presence. And so we have nothing to fear in this life, nor do we have anything to fear from death. And I just love the way uh, chapter 8 of the book of Romans ends where it talks about nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So God will remember us because we have received Jesus and we love him by looking for opportunities to sh serve others and for making course corrections when needed. Uh, but because we have been saved, because we've received the gospel, we are always with God, even now and even when we die. And we have a glorious reunion with Jesus Christ to look forward to uh, when it is that we die. So I uh, pray that these things are encouraging to you. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your glorious word. And uh, Lord, these, these problems that we see in Judah are representative of the problems we see in our own country, Lord. Uh, there is division on all levels in our country. And Nehemiah was an agent of change, an agent of unity, an agent of harmony, an agent of solutions to problems, Lord. And so I just pray, Lord, that instead of us griping about the problems, that we would be like Nehemiah, that we would be agents of change, agents of solution, a people who reconcile others to each other, Lord. 
your word says, blessed are the peacemakers, Lord. And that's what Nehemiah was. And I pray that we'll be the same, Lord. Thank you for this testimony. Thank you for your son, Lord. And we pray in his matchless name. Amen.